Hello and welcome back to the Wildlife Garden podcast. Uh, I'm out in the garden. Uh, oh, hello blackbird. I just disturbed the blackbird having a go at the... What are they having a go at? The, oh, the mealworms on the bird feeding table. Yeah, so I'm out in the garden and I'm just staging our pots. And staging pots is just a fancy term for arranging your pots to look nice. So at this time of year, um, especially if you've got a small garden or a balcony, having some small bulbs growing in pots is a great way to provide nectar and pollen for early flying pollinators and we've just seen in the last week that all of the bumblebee queens have just come out uh, certainly around nottingham so it's a really valuable resource for them in one of the pots here we've got some crocus actually we've got two pots full of crocus yeah they're just labeled as crocus mix so it's just a mix of different bulbs that we've um bought from the garden centre. Uh, and in another pot we've got some iris reticulata which are really short dwarf irises but they're in a beautiful velvet purple and they've got a sort of a, a spotted white and yellowy orange interior which just looks absolutely amazing. In another we've got some muscari which are the grape hyacinth coming and in an, the final one we've got oh yeah so these are a daffodil and they're called sail bites so they're not actually up yet the flower heads are just forming but um oh they're absolutely stunning they've got their sort of a, a cream color and they've got swept back petals and oh they just lasted for ages really really beautiful so as you look out the garden window we've got a bench um, but they also doubles as a pot stand so it's just one long really wide bench and you can sit quite a few people on there but either side we have all these pots arranged and I'm just um, putting them together now so you can see all of the flowers from the kitchen window. Now all these pots that we've got out here are terracotta and we really like terracotta because we just like to look at um, natural materials when we're out in the garden but the thing with terracotta is that cheap terracotta although it will last a few years eventually it will just um, shatter in the frost, it will crack um, and you'll have to buy some new ones, which is fine, you get a few years out of them anyway. But if you can, I would certainly recommend buying um, really good quality terracotta because if you look after it, if you um, put it up on feet over the winter so the pots don't fill with water you know, and expand and crack that terracotta, then they'll really last you a, a long time. But good terracotta is expensive. So what we do, to make the most of the pots we've got is in the autumn we plant uh, one of these pots up with all the bulbs ready for the spring as they come up and they flower we arrange them so they look nicest in the garden but once they're over and they've done their thing and they're all the leaves have died down then we actually tip all the bulbs out with the compost attached and just put them into a plastic pot and we put them out of the way somewhere else in the garden uh, where you can't see them those bulbs because they've already died down will just uh, sit there ready to be repotted the following year but what that means is that you've then got an empty pot with a pot full of crocuses like I've got here we might tip those out and then replant it with chives or something later in the year but also in some of these pots we'll be sowing um, night scented stocks and night scented flocks and we absolutely love night scented plants in the garden the first year we grew night scented stocks we had so many moths we actually encouraged bats into our tiny garden so they must have already been in the area but just the fact that all the moths were flying around our garden brought the bats in um, but the other thing of course is in the middle of the summer you're going to be out in your garden in the evening and that sweet spicy scent will waft over your garden as you're out in the evening having your glass of wine or your barbecue 
So I think I've arranged those the best I can for now. Yet you'll be able to see all of those from the kitchen windows and washing up. So I think now it's time to go in, find Ellie and get on with the podcast. So I found Ellie inside and uh, we're just going to get on with our sightings actually before the news this week. We're not going to talk about spring just yet. Oh, please. It really has felt so (laughs) spring-like. I know, but we realised from years of gardening now that this is, oh, what you saw one thing on Facebook, which was like the spring of deceit, they call it. (laughs) No, I think we're still in full spring. Spring of deceit is probably in the next month or so when it gets warmer. Uh, Yeah, March is still, what is it? In like a lion, out like a lamb. We've got a long way to go yet. We usually wait until the uh, spring equinox, don't we? Which is only a couple of weeks away. But then after that point, we start to celebrate the coming of spring. But still, we have, I think, uh, seen a lot of wildlife responding to the warmer temperatures of last week, which has been really exciting. And while I've been fiddling around in borders, I've just noticed loads of soil life coming up to the surface. Um, I've seen loads of soil centipedes, which are those really long, thin, wiggly, impossibly bendy centipedes that you quite often dig up in in your soil those are the same ones you see in compost yeah 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 the exact ones i've also seen outside our garden gate some black ants which i think are probably the the common black ant the laziest niger starting to build a nest but they did all look quite dozy so i think they're probably maybe a bit premature they looked a bit like oh why am i awake (laughs) And well, I think for me, this is not strictly in a garden. We did go to a nature reserve at the weekend, but we witnessed something extreme. I feel very privileged to have seen this, but we spotted some long tailed tits in the middle of building a nest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, It was like the holy grail of bird watching. Ellie is so good at spotting stuff. Was it a bramble? It was bramble. But just right next to a path, you know, a meter away from the path. And they were yeah building their little nest in there. So I've got a, um, what was it, about a five-second video is all yeah. I got. We left them undisturbed, um, yeah, but I did manage to get a, a couple of seconds of video of them building the nest, um, which I'll put on Twitter and on and, Facebook as well. Oh, and I should probably point out, this is this is for Ben. He saw Sparrowhawks. I saw too. <laughs> <laughs> this is a momentous moment. It is. It's <laughs> finally happened. We were out for a walk and... I'd walked, I don't know, 10 metres further than Ellie and I tur- she was just, she didn't turn up. So I went back and then she said, oh, you're going to kill me because a sparrowhawk just flew out of a bush right next to her trying to make a kill. And I was just ready to end everything, he, just walk off. He actually didn't talk to me for about <laughs> five minutes until another one flew over and, and, and got, I saw then he it. was really happy. But interestingly, I mean, we've seen crows mobbing um, various birds of prey, usually buzzards, like the corvids do like to attack a buzzard in, in midair. But we saw behind this one sparrowhawk, a big gaggle of goldfinch and they were definitely following it. It was, it Which was like, I said is taunting. the safest place to be. Yeah. I, the think safe, behind, I mean, right yeah. behind the sparrowhawk is much better than anywhere in front of it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. Not I'd say spring's arrived, but there is definitely a, a feel of it in the air. <laughs> yeah. Things are starting to move, aren't they? Yeah. And the other sighting, I have to admit to this, actually, it turns out I had actually seen a sparrowhawk before. <laughs> and also I've seen the mysterious chiff chaff from our garden because I was going back through some photos that I've been taking over the last couple of months and 
what I thought was a female sparrow in one of my photos of the big ivy at the back turned out to be the chiff chaff. And another one I thought was a, of a kestrel turned out to be a sparrow hawk. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. I don't know is, if I'm taking these retrospectives well, sightings. <laughs> well, the thing is that just before I looked through these photos, we were sitting at the kitchen table and I was looking at a box of cereal saying about how I used to be able to read the typeface at you know a couple of meters distance and maybe I should go to the opticians because my eyes aren't so good anymore (laughs) and I think even looking at this what I thought was a kestrel with binoculars I think basically I just need to go and get my eyes tested Ben's getting old yeah yeah (laughs) I'm allowed to say that because I am actually older than him in actual years but you know it's still quite funny to take the mick isn't it um should we go through some lovely feedback from yes indeed thank you everybody who um, gave us a review on itunes it's just wonderful to hear your feedback and uh it's also great to hear that it's not just our family that is listening as well um so we want to say a special thanks to everybody's given us a review which was um keels 95 verbena which is a great name horticultural name um bosch 365 who we think is probably caroline bosher um who gave us a review last time um green painted bird and somebody called thrapston now may or may not be your aunt yeah there's a village called thrapston where my aunt lives and as part of this review the person said that they're taking ivy to the school where they work and my aunt works in a school so if it is my aunt listening thank Thank you you very very much much. (laughs) if it's not my aunt of course then thank you anyway We've also had some lovely emails um, straight to our inbox. A nice one from Stuart Murdoch, who's up in Ayrshire, and uh, one from Shelley Nooth down in Cornwall, who's just about to start a new wildlife gardening business as well. So, Shelley, if you're listening, let us know how you get on, and uh, we can always advertise you, give you a little plug when you get going. So, so listeners all the way from Cornwall to Scotland, and that's pretty good. Yeah, it's really exciting to see that other professional gardeners are also out there and doing the same thing that we are so very happy to help promote them definitely news time right um mine's quite a quick one in the guardian it was reported about hedging plants and their effectiveness at trapping pollution and that's specifically from roadside pollution it was based on an rhs study which i couldn't find the scientific paper on but i'll just summarize what the guardian said about it on looking at a number of different hedging plants, they actually found that Cotoniaster franchettii is apparently 20% more effective at absorbing pollution than other shrubs. And this was based on roads with a lot of traffic and it was less evident on quieter streets. So a really good fact from this study was that over seven days when they were doing their investigations, a one metre length of well-managed dense hedge will mop up the equivalent pollution that a car emits over 500 miles of driving. That's amazing. Isn't it? That's just fantastic. So think of all those front gardens that could have a nice hedge in it just to mop up all that pollution. Another part of the study, which, I mean, I did find a lot of this was fairly obvious, but really good that they're actually studying it and putting numbers to these things. But that in general, denser, more complex structured and hairy leaf plants are better at this trapping of pollution, which is why this Cotoniaster species is so good. And also that a hawthorn and privet hedge will in- ease in- intensive summer rainfall and therefore reduce local flooding. Fairly obvious stuff. You mean they ease the rate at which the rainfall hits the soil? That's right, yeah. Oh, okay. So in summary, plants are always best. And if you're specifically trying to trap pollution, if you live on a busy street with lots of traffic then go for dense more complex structured and hairy leaved plants because that would trap the most pollutants 
Brilliant. My news is that I've been reading a new paper written by Nick Tew and others. And Nick is somebody we briefly met at the Wildlife Gardening Forum Symposium a couple of years ago, where he presented some of the work he was he was doing. And this is the first paper he's published to come out of that work. So it's called Quantifying Nectar Production by Flowering Plants in Urban and Rural Landscapes, which is a good old scientific title. But really what they're looking at studying is to quantify the amount of nectar in urban areas in farmland and in nature reserves and just then to compare them but they also looked at urban areas and whether different land uses within those areas are producing more nectar than others they looked at allotments cemeteries gardens man-made services like car parks and industrial estates nature reserves in urban areas and other green spaces like amenity grassland so just playing fields parks um and they also looked at pavements and road verges as well so they've found some really interesting results. So to do this study, they took a series of existing databases on uh, flower nectar production, and they also did a lot of work themselves. And this is part of what uh, Nick actually is doing for his PhD. Um, They actually go out with tiny, tiny, tiny little pipettes and suck the nectar out of the middle of flowers to find out how much sugar is in it. There's a few key things that came out of this study, which are really interesting. First of all, Actually, urban areas, farmland and nature reserves all produced around about the same amount of nectar. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, it was a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. If you go back a couple of episodes, we were talking about bees in farmland and the problems of there not being enough pollen and nectar in farmlands. So we'll come back onto this in a second. But but this is a slightly contradictory study saying that, you know, there's as much nectar in all of those different types of land use. Unsurprisingly, in nature reserves, they found that native plants produce most of the nectar. And that's just because nature reserves are full of native plants, basically. They found in farmland that it was a mixture between native and non-native plants. But again, that's not a surprise because basically farmland, what we eat, is a mixture of native and non-native plants. An interesting outcome of the study, though, is that in urban areas, they found that nearly a quarter of the total amount of nectar produced came from just one collection of species, and those were the fuchsias. Ooh, well, interestingly, the, the fuchsia, most of, which, most of the species of which actually come from Central and Southern America, produce a lot of nectar to attract hummingbirds, and that's how they pollinate. They attract the birds in, and then they move the pollen around. Exactly. It's a bit of a surprise, then, that British native species are adapting so readily to some of these exotic plants. Some of the other plants that were producing the most nectar were things like clovers, trifolium, repens. Clovers were one of the biggest nectar producers across all land use types. So in urban areas, they produced about 15% of the total amount of nectar. In farmland, they actually produced 36% of the total amount of nectar. And in nature reserves, they produced 4%, but the writers of the study um, are a bit wary of their own results for nature reserves because three quarters of the nectar produced was just from one species of heather. And that's just because one of their nature reserves they they looked at had so much heather, which was producing so much nectar, it sort of skewed the results a bit. But it just shows, you know, clover is really, really valuable. And most people will end up with clover in their lawn. You know, if you mm. just stop putting the weed killer down and it's just so valuable. It's also really good for pollen as well. It's a legume and legumes are known for producing particularly high quality pollen for insects, which a lot of insects need. 
But while I said that each of these land use types, again, it was urban areas, farmland and nature reserves, all produced around about the same amount of nectar, they produced a table as part of this study about what types of urban area produce the most nectar. And like I said, gardens produce the vast majority of all of the nectar found in urban areas. Go gardens. Second is allotments, which isn't a surprise because you sort of garden allotments as well. You choose to have a wide variety and diversity of plants there. But then dropping off rapidly after that, you've got parks. Interestingly, nature reserves come after parks in Mm. urban areas for the amount of nectar they produce. And right down at the bottom, no surprise, you've got pavement and man-made surfaces, Um, which isn't a surprise because tarmac doesn't have that much nectar on it generally. Although they didn't find none. Um, If you've got a car park with a few shrubs planted around them, they actually found some shrubs like uh, Berberis and Ceanothus can produce a massive amount of nectar supply just within one plant. And something we saw uh, Nick talk about at his lecture was, oh, what was it? The flowering currant. That's right. Ribes. Yeah, Ribes sanguineum, exactly. And it produces, just one plant produces as much nectar as acres of just grassland that was a fact that i've been desperate to tell people ever since we saw that talk if you've got a tiny garden you just had one ribe sanguineum just knowing that you're producing more nectar than your local park you're going to feel like you're doing something so just a few things to pull out of this study a couple of limitations of this study is that they didn't look at the time of flowering so like we said in the episode where we covered bees in the countryside um This study didn't look at nectar production over a whole year. So it probably still is the case that in a farm, if you went out and did a transect, you might find a huge amount of nectar, but only when the flowers are out of the whatever it is that they're growing. As soon as that's been harvested and there's the ground is empty, then there's going to be nothing. They also didn't look at trees or shrubs over two metres. So it might be the case that some of the statistics around nature reserves are a bit skewed because of Mm. that, because nature reserves, we were actually just out in the nature reserve at the weekend where we saw some of the bees and and, uh, butterflies even out early. And they were on um, willows, willows. which were really Mm -hmm. tall. So again, absolutely full of flower, but probably just uh, above the heads of the um, the people doing the study. Um, They they point all this out themselves, by the way, in, in the paper. And another thing that they point out as part of this paper is that just over 60 i think it was about 65 percent of the nectar produced in urban areas came from non-native species Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that non-native species are better than native ones just to imagine going around most people's gardens they've got generally lots of non-native species so it might just be a, a bit of a bias in the fact that that's what people are already buying so We're going to come back to a lot of the topics that uh, are brought up in this paper over different episodes. We are going to do one on native versus non-native species. We'll be doing one specifically on trees and pollen. And yeah, I really highly recommend going and reading this paper if you're interested because it's open access. So we'll link to it in the show notes along with everything else that we're talking about today. But yeah, it just really shows gardens and plants in gardens are the most important thing. That's the news covered for this week, and we're going to go on to our topic now, which is basically, what is wildlife gardening? What is wildlife gardening? Maybe we should have done this as episode one. We did talk about it, and we thought we were going to try and get into our flow before tackling this quite general topic. And interestingly, I just this morning thought I'd do a little exercise on Facebook, and I'm a member of the Wildlife Gardening Forum. On Facebook, their Facebook group. Yes, and I thought 
I'm just going to see what people in this group. I think there's about 41,000 members now. Is it? Yeah, it's huge, wow. which is really, really good. Um, but I thought I'd just see what do people on here define as wildlife gardening? Because despite the fact that we've read so many books and we practice it every day, a friend asked me recently and I was not stumped, but I couldn't just give a very quick answer. I mean, yeah, that's it's just difficult. more if you just say. Than... <laughs> ponds nest boxes hedges and just reel off a load of stuff it uh-huh. can seem just like a, a hodgepodge of just bits and bobs basically yep. but actually it's quite easy to condense it down precisely but before we go into people that we read and things like that i thought i'd just give a couple of quotes from my responses of which i had i think it was about 87 last time i looked so it was quite a i think it, it got people going yeah. say. <laughs> um but yes one of my favorites was from sarah or sarah sherlock based in and she said that she thought wildlife gardening was gardening that does no harm to wildlife and actively supports it by planting and practice she was i think the second responder and i just thought yes that's exactly it (laughs) (laughs) i like the fact that by saying and practice she is acknowledging that actually we're all always learning and gardening is done by practicing it you you can read all the books but essentially we all need to just do it and have a go and learn and that's interesting because i read that as practice as meaning you know what people do not as in practicing something i think it probably means both yeah well it's great Mm -hmm. because you're exactly right wildlife gardening just like all types of gardening requires a bit of practice you need to do something see how it works out learn from your mistakes and and that's that's the way you learn it's how anybody learns Uh, about anything to do with nature you just need to observe and see what happens yeah and by saying gardening that does no harm to wildlife it she's acknowledging that it is a choice that we can make so you can either do something that does or doesn't harm wildlife and we'll go into that a little in a little bit um and another one which just made me laugh more than anything for me it's not freaking out when a badger or fox digs up my plants again (laughs) (laughs) and i I mean it's just funny but also i like the fact that it's highlighting that we should as gardeners not panic if we see something happening in the garden that hasn't been done by us if if nature has decided on something not to say you have to leave it but it's just a case of not panicking nice so if you're a member of the wildlife gardening forum you can probably go on and find a lot of those other responses um to ellie's question so it's well worth going on there and having a look to see what other people think but when we first started getting into wildlife gardening there was one book we read which we think is still probably the best starting book and if you're just going to buy one book about wildlife gardening we recommend buying this one and this was a book called a Companion to Wildlife Gardening is published by the RHS, but it's written by a guy called Chris Baines. And Chris Baines, I think I'm right in saying, was the first person to do a wildlife garden at Chelsea. Yes, I should point out that this was in 1985. And back then, although wildlife gardening was obviously being discussed because this guy was already doing it, the fact that it was at Chelsea was quite controversial. It was a big change, wasn't it? It was a big, big change. And now if you go to Chelsea, every other garden's a naturalistic style, yep. isn't it? Which just shows how far we've come in yeah, terms absolutely. of understanding this. It's really exciting. His book is the Bible of wildlife gardening to us. We probably won't cover it in our um, book club because it's quite long and we yes. want to give people specific books. You know, So if you want to know about ponds, we'll recommend a particular pond book. But as we say, if you want just one book on wildlife gardening, go and get it. And if you read it, you'll see in there that he has 10 things that he thinks all wildlife gardens should provide. So those are shelter and shade, 
layers of plants from tree canopy down to carpeting ground cover, flowers, fruits and seeds the whole year round, a reliable supply of water, room for decay with mulches, composting and rotten logs, freedom from damaging pesticides, a bird feeding station, extra sites for nesting and roosting, green links to the surrounding neighbourhood and finally a secluded seat for maximum enjoyment. Oh, I like that last point. And one thing we'd really encourage you to go and look at is, I think in 1980 something or other, it was in the 80s anyway, he made a one-hour documentary which was on the, the TV um, called Blue Tits and Bumblebees. And you can find this in two parts on YouTube. We'll put it into the links again. It's just wonderful. It shows you how he developed his garden, including all of these things mm. over... It was over a year, but then they revisited it, didn't they, after everything got established. So he dug this massive pond. It was like a lake. in his. It's just a suburban back garden. And he dug this huge pond. He's got um, long grass, wildflower meadows. He put in all the hedges, put in... Um, sort of a little woodland area oh it's just wonderful and if you you know if you've got an hour and want to know everything about wildlife gardening yeah go and go and look at that it's fantastic generally top bloke yeah and another one of our favorite wildlife gardeners is kate bradbury she's based in brighton she is also the author of the book that we're going to be reviewing in the next podcast so if you haven't heard about that then check out our show notes and maybe get yourself a copy you've got two more weeks to read it And in her book, she's distilled wildlife gardening into three things that everyone should be doing. Three essentials. Three essentials. And that is to provide food, water and shelter for the animals in your garden. So if you want to know more about wildlife gardening generally, we really recommend going and grabbing one of those books. But from our experience doing this, um, there's one thing that we really want to say, which is that there's no such thing as a wildlife patch. And we were encouraged to think about this ourselves in a bit more detail. Again, going back to the Wildlife Gardening Forum symposium we went to a couple of years ago by um, Adrian Thomas, it was wasn't Adrian it? Thomas from said this. Yeah. the RSPB. And he put up a slide and he, he showed a, a big public park. And in one little corner of the public park, there was a special wildlife area. And it looked just like all wildlife areas look there were some brambles and there was a little bit of long grass and you know some raised planters with a few plants in and he rightly said why isn't the whole park a wildlife friendly park why does the wildlife patch have to be something specific and small you know tucked out of the way and this is really true of gardens yeah kate covers this in her book as well and It's really important as wildlife gardeners that you recognise that your whole garden is valuable to wildlife and hence your gardening practices should be good for that wildlife across that whole area. It's not just the little corner that you've designated. I mean, no ant is going to go, oh, that's where I'm meant to be living. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to go where they where they want to go, aren't they? The other thing that comes out of that is this idea that there's a certain aesthetic to wildlife gardens. It just has to be nettles and brambles and completely untidy. And that can be good, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you've got a certain aesthetic of what a wildlife garden looks like in your head, just get rid of it. Any garden can be good for wildlife. And it depends more on how you are managing your garden rather than how it looks. And yes, there are many advantages to not being too tidy, to letting the weeds grow, 
to um, not clearing things away too early. But there's been many, many studies on big formal gardens, estates like Great Dixter, where they've taken a load of entomologists for a walk around and they've looked at how much life there are in these gardens. And the Great Dixter one is a great is a brilliant example because they actually produced a big report afterwards and which shows just how many rare species they have in this garden. And it is a heavily gardened garden. <laughs> you wouldn't go to Great Dixter and say, this is a traditional aesthetic for a wildlife garden. It looks like a beautiful country house, her big herbaceous borders. You know, it looks like anything you would see in uh, an RHS magazine, something like that. And yet it is absolutely wonderful for wildlife. Yes, I think removing that aesthetic from your mind is probably one of the most important things because then I think it just means that you, you're you a bit more free to make a garden that you like the look of as well. It doesn't, I mean, not everyone can cope with extremely scruffy edges or whatever. And what we're saying is that you don't actually, that doesn't define your wildlife garden. Having a slightly scruffy edge lawn isn't the, the number one important thing. So for a good example is leaf litter. Now, leaf litter in autumn is an absolutely fantastic and vital habitat for so many species. Lots of insects overwinter in it. However, as gardeners, we also recognise that leaving three inches of leaf litter on your, for example, grass patch is probably not going to be the best thing for your grass patch. What we're not saying is to go in there and hoover up all those leaves and then chuck them in your garden waste bin. The best thing you can do is probably remove them from the areas where they they might well cause a bit of damage to something you like, i.e. your lawn or your grass area. But don't take them out of the system of your garden. Maybe make a leaf mould pile in a, in, a, in a corner and then you're not actually physically removing that fauna that might be overwintering in those leaves. Yeah, and if you've, coming back to uh, an example like Great Dixter, where they have these large herbaceous borders, you know, have a formal flower garden, but in the winter after the flowers are finished, leave the stems up. There's no reason to cut them down and chuck them away. You know, leave the stems up and we would wait until early spring when we see um, green shoots to start to come from the bottom of the plants. Then we'd cut all the stems off. But then again, we wouldn't throw them away. We'd just pile them all up elsewhere. So anything that's still hiding away in those stems has a chance to crawl out in the spring. If you've got a nice crispy leaf, like an echinacea, and we've got loads of borders where echinacea has been growing, and they're still standing now, and the birds are still eating the seed from the seed heads They as look well. amazing in the frost. They look amazing in the frost. Then, by all means, obviously, do leave those up. I do think there's a lot to be said for finding the beauty in uh, in that brown stem. And exactly. We've been trained over generations and generations or told that it's not good to see decay in the garden. And that is one thing, actually, that as wildlife gardeners, you should if you can try and train your brain to away from yeah that's right and yeah we've been trained to get rid of anything that's yeah decaying like ellie says but also then to to clear it to see what to see bare soil yeah don't want to see that (laughs) in a wildlife garden you don't want to see any bare soil if you can avoid it again you know if you have bare soil using uh, an organic mulch would be better than not doing anything but in the wildlife garden the more flowers, the better. So you really don't want to be seeing that soil. You want to get a plant in it. So when we're talking about these sorts of um, little ways of adjusting the way you manage your garden, what we want to get across to people is that it is still your garden. You're not Wildlife gardening doesn't mean you have to have a nature reserve. And it's important making that distinction because nature reserves are heavily managed to be good for certain species. Um, there's loads of examples of this. If you want to... N- 
learn about some of the intensive work that has to go on to save particular species you could look up the back from the brink project which is running at the moment and when you start to understand the level of detail that they are putting into saving different um, insects butterflies um, even mosses which only grow on like five meters of wall somewhere in cornwall you'll see that trying to be that specific is probably beyond the capacity of most normal gardeners so when you are gardening you're trying to make an overall good habitat for wildlife that is coming into your garden but also for yourself so in response to my question on the wildlife gardening forum this morning i think you i could actually see two broad camps of people there are some people that think that wildlife gardening is only for the wildlife and that that's absolutely everything that's to do with it's nothing to do with humans we're very separate from it and then there's another camp of which we're actually part of that is your garden is still your garden and you and to actually be out there and do all these beneficial things it has to be a space that you enjoy being in yourself and by all means if there's a nice sunny spot in the morning that you like having a coffee in and watching your birds then make that your nice sunny spot for sitting in and having your coffee to watch your birds it doesn't have to be entirely given over to that wildlife. Exactly. And a good example of this to explain what we're talking about is something that came up on the Wildlife Gardening Forum's Facebook um, group, which was somebody was asking a question about a, what was it, about a 20 foot Leylandii hedge at yeah. the back of their garden. I think they just inherited it. It was a new garden to them. That's right. Mm-hmm. And they were, at, they were saying on this question that they wanted to cut it down. And what should they replace it with? Now, a a lot of people on the forum were saying, don't cut it down because it's so good for the birds. And that is true. But if that Leylandii hedge means you're not going to enjoy going out into your garden at all, because it's completely shading it, you're never going to sit out there. Are you actually going to go and do all the other things in your garden that make it good for wildlife? Probably not if you don't enjoy being in your garden. So the point of this question was, what should we replace it with? And so if you've got a big Leylandii hedge, something like that, then yes, the birds might enjoy it at the moment, but they will equally enjoy a eight foot tall native hedge. And you shouldn't be put off changing things that are better for wildlife in your garden, but they are also good for you. You know, in this example, we would say, just get rid of the the Leylandii. It's okay for birds, but there are better things for the birds anyway. And just get on with it because the quicker you put in the native hedge, the quicker you get the benefits for the birds, but also all the flower, all the pollen and all the nectar and all the leaves for the native um, uh, butterflies and moss whose larvae eat those as their food. And we've actually got an example of a customer that did exactly this. And and I think that was also Leylandii and she waited a full year because she just missed the boat in one year before she had that tree removed so that she caused the least disturbance to the birds that may or may not be nesting in it. So, yeah, it's really important that if you are, well, it's actually a big deal for us to say take out a plant because even for our customers, we we do try our best not to do that. And like Ben just said, if you are doing something as big a job as that in your garden, then always, always try and replace it not like for like, but with something better. Yeah, and then so you know we, you're making a net gain for wildlife. Now, we don't want to give the wrong impression if we sound like we're sort of encouraging people to take out plants. We really are not. We're just saying it's about choosing what's better for wildlife. And again, in the Leylandii example, the native hedge is better. But there's all sorts of other choices that you can make as a gardener. And you might be thinking, what should I do with my lawn? Well, it's always better to choose a lawn than to choose plastic turf. 
you might be thinking about what to do with your boundary. Well, if you've got a choice of a hedge or a fence, the hedge is better. Always the hedge. If you have got some permanent shrubs and you want uh, a mulch to keep the weeds down around them, choose wood chip instead of slate chippings. And if you've got a dying tree that's not a danger to you or your house, why not allow the deadwood to stand rather than chopping it down with a chainsaw? Because deadwood is absolutely vital for so many hundreds or thousands of species of wildlife. And if you've got a problem with aphids, why not try and deal with it organically instead of using pesticides? I think that's it. And I think at every point that you're out in your garden and you've got you know, this decision to make over what you want to do with something, then you could just stop for two minutes and just think to yourself, well, is what I'm about to do going to be destructive to wildlife? And if is it, it is, the best then, option? Then do another thing. <laughs> so as gardeners, when we stood out in our garden and we've got a specific task to do, like whether it's controlling aphids on our roses or when to cut back herbaceous perennials or whether to take out that landry hedge and what to replace it with, then just take stock for 30 seconds and just think to yourself, is what I'm about to do damaging to wildlife? And what is the best thing that I could do for wildlife? And always go with that second option. That's right. So while um, Chris Baines has his 10 points for everything you'd like you to include in your garden and Kate Bradbury has a food, water and shelter, we just want to give you one top tip, really. And that's to always remember that life begets life. So if you've got a choice about whether to put something living in your garden, that is always the best thing for wildlife. Indeed. More plants. More plants. (laughs) How many times are I going to say that? Brilliant. Now we've got loads of episodes in the pipeline. We've made a list of episodes that is going to be more than a year's worth of podcasts coming up. And in each of those episodes, we're going to cover lots of specific topics. So again, we'll be talking about ponds in one, hedges in another. So just listen out. But if you're trying to decide what to do right now, then we're just going to tell you some places where you can look for further advice. If you have a question, look up good advice before you make a decision. And and I'll give you an example of this. And it's not really something that we're exactly proud of as wildlife organic gardeners, but Well, Ellie, why don't you tell them what we did about rat-tailed maggots? Oh, that's right. Let me tell the story. Yeah, this is something that we're absolutely not proud of. And it it, it happened when we were less enlightened about uh, wildlife in our garden. And as I said, this is a really long learning journey that we're definitely still on. But quite a few years ago now, we were emptying a water butt to clean it. In no, no, the garden. It, was com- it was comfrey tea, wasn't oh, it? Oh, sugar. Yeah, sorry. We had a, a water butt full of comfrey tea, which is just a natural uh, fertilizer that you can make at home. It absolutely stinks. I mean, really, there's nothing, so there's nothing quite like it. But really good for plants, the stuff that comes out. But we were emptying this very, very smelly water butt. And in it were what can only be described as well massive floating maggots massive floating maggots with long tails now at the time the mixture of the smell with not knowing what on earth these maggots were and they say this is this is a while ago now sent us into a panic and we broke all our rules that we now have of not panicking when you see something you don't understand in the garden and we set about trying to exterminate these things and i'm very very sad to say that we did do exactly that we didn't use my my general rule now of being inquisitive and checking before you do something. So going back to the making a choice thing, before you make an action in the garden, just check to see whether it's the best thing. Because we now know that these maggots are specifically the maggots of a drone fly, which is one of our 
one of our best pollinators. It's a type of hoverfly. And we ended up killing these beneficial predators and pollinators because we didn't know any better. Now, I really, I mean, I am quite childlike in my fascination of the natural world anyway. But if I see something that I've never seen before now, I just spend a few minutes, usually on a Facebook group, if I want an immediate answer, and Ben will just go into which ones are the best in a second. But I check because you learn more and and by learning more, that topic then becomes more interesting. And actually being in the garden and noticing these things again, whether it's a type of maggot or a fly or an ant, whatever it is, I now find it more enjoyable to be out in the garden seeing those things and know how to act and not kill everything. (laughs) Yeah, so we learned from that and now we always look up advice and we said, I think in the first episode, all the stuff that we say through this podcast, some of it we know from our day-to-day work, but a lot of it we're looking up from these organisations mm-hmm. ourselves. Um, so we'll put a long list of people you can find further information from into the show notes. You know, if you're looking for what to plant for bats, how to put up bat boxes in your gardens, go to the Bat Trust. If you're looking for what to do for bumblebees, go to the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. You know, there's loads of specialist organisations that have usually great advice for gardens as well so by all means if you want to know something specific go to those there's some really good websites jenny Steele is an ecologist and has got wonderful website absolutely jam-packed of brilliant advice Um, and she's written a number of books we've got as well so we'll link to that the wildlife gardening forum actually have a website and the information on there is brilliant because they link to a lot of the scientific papers. It's so, so good. Cannot stress how good that website is. If you've got an insect like a rat-tailed, a maggot. rat-tailed maggot that you don't know about, <laughs> there's loads of specialist Facebook groups. There's general ones like there's one called Insects and Invertebrates of Britain and Europe. This became um, my favourite Facebook group a couple of years ago because the wealth of knowledge on there there's always at least 10 very very knowledgeable people waiting to identify the bug that you don't you've never seen before so yeah that's really good for an immediate answer yeah and there's ones for butterflies and bees and everything you can think of there's a specialist Facebook group and the people in there the knowledge is just amazing Um, the RHS have got loads and loads of resources on wildlife gardening as do garden organic so if you're a member of either of those Um, or actually their websites are are free to view so go ahead and have a look on them and of course there's all the books that are out there and we'll be talking about those as we go through but just one note of caution we don't like to be downers with this exactly but we have seen on some of the general wildlife gardening forums on Facebook that there is some really bad advice knocking about. Yeah I think when you've got you know 41,000 members in a group and everyone's trying to be really really helpful Not all of the answers that are given are fact-checked. And this is actually something that we've noticed in gardening in general. There is a lot of advice out there that is passed on from parents, from friends, and not checked. Whereas what we're trying to do with this podcast is really try and get the science out there. So we're not trying to say that we have all the answers, but we are trying to say that we're trying to find the best answers. So while these discussion forums are absolutely brilliant for connecting people together, and like I said, my post this morning on the Wildlife Gardening Forum was really fun. It was a fun exercise and and really did feel quite warm and fuzzy inside just reading some some people's takes on what wildlife gardening is. But in terms of getting actual specific answers, I don't think that they're always the best way to go. No, uh, just to give you one example, a couple of episodes ago, we did one on feeding birds, didn't we? And there was a question on 
on one of the forums uh, just a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, what should I feed? This, that and the other. And, uh, you know, there were several people in the comments saying, don't feed them too much. They'll become dependent. Uh, dependent on your feeding. And that's just not true. So I would say a lot of these groups are, like Ellie says, great for connecting with people, great for showing off what you're doing. But if you want to know advice on feeding birds, go to the RSPB or to the British Trust for Ornithology, because they are the people that know. So yeah, I think hopefully that wasn't too waffly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's quite a general subject. What is wildlife gardening? But as I said, it's something that I struggled to define concisely before. But as we say, in two weeks, we're going to be reviewing Kate Bradbury's book. And she does a lovely synopsis of what it is. So we'll be talking again about this in two weeks. Yeah, just remember, life begets life. Life begets life. Put plants in your gardens. (laughs) (laughs) which moves me on nicely to the the next topic, which is this week's native plant. This week, we're looking at Cornus sanguinea, which is the common dogwood. Now, sanguinea, the Latin, means blood red. And this potentially comes from the fact that when they're young, the stems are a dark red. And also in autumn, the, the leaves turn a rich claret. And they're actually one of the first of our native plants to show autumn colours. Really, really beautiful shrub. And it's actually one of our largest native shrubs. It can reach about five metres tall. It, in the summer, has creamy white flowers in clusters or umbels, which then, if they're pollinated, will develop into black fruit around September, October. And actually, sometimes you can see unripe red red fruit and ripened black fruit on the same cluster, which looks really pretty. And the reason why we've chosen this as our native plant for this podcast is because right now is when they're really looking their best in the winter garden because their leaves have dropped off. Those bright red stems, are, especially in sunlight, just incredibly rich and can just really brighten up a border when there might not be as many flowers around. So really fantastic plant for your garden. However, I would say that when I was researching this, I quickly clicked on the RHS page for the common dogwood just to get a bit more information. And their photo is really terrible. Oh, I don't awful. know why. I think it's like a diseased plant. And anyway, they've, they've don't been... don't look at that and think, oh, my goodness, why is she talking about this? Yeah, it's they not what picked it like, like the worst possible photo. I mean, if. <laughs> Yeah, if somebody looked on their website, they would be totally put off. It's like the leaves are all rotten and mildewed. mildewed, Oh, it's just, yeah, just we do recommend the RHS pages for learning about the plants. But in this case, just ignore the photo. I'm going to email them and just just point out that maybe they should change the photo. But anyway, a bit of background about the Cornus sanguinea. It is found throughout temperate Europe from the Mediterranean basin to England also including Ireland, although it's slightly less common there. And it can also be found in some parts of Norway, Sweden and in Western Russia. So it's got quite a far range. Has it got to North Africa? I don't think it has. No, first plant, right? It can grow in damp conditions and indeed tolerates quite a wide range of moisture levels around its roots, but tends to thrive on damp woodland edges but it's also equally at home in a hedgerow, which is where you tend to find it. It's mixed, a classic hedgerow plant, isn't it? Mixed native plant hedgerow. Yeah, if you do buy a mixed native pack of hedging, which is quite often how they're sold, then you're likely to have dogwood in it. You are. So a little bit about the history and folklore of this plant, because it does have quite an interesting one. So it's called dogwood after its smooth, straight twigs, which we used to make butcher's skewers. Now, skewers 
were also known as dags or dogs. So literally the word dogwood relates to skewerwood. And there are also three other local names for dogwood which reflect this. Um, that's prickwood, scut... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some children in here. Uh, <laughs> Skyverwood? I don't understand that one. And I don't understand those, actually. The wood is actually incredibly hard and was supposedly used for crucifixes because of that, including, some sources say, the crucifix of Jesus himself. However... I think we've read that about quite a few other types of trees. If you read tree. into the folklore of trees, or every other tree was used for the crucifix for Jesus. They're all just trying, they're all just name dropping, aren't yeah. they? That's it. And a little bit of medical history as well. The the bark is actually rich in tannins and in traditional medicine this has been used as a substitute for quinine, although we say don't try this at home. So now we get to move on to the sexual antics of the dogwood. Dogwood is a hermaphrodite, which as we've been talking about in previous episodes, that is where the male and female productive parts are contained within the same flower. It's an outcrossing hermaphrodite. Now, we've talked before a bit about some plants being self-pollinated and other plants requiring another plant. When a plant requires another plant to be pollinated, it's called an outcrossing plant. So if you hear us say that again, then that's where it comes from. The flowers, as I said, are produced in clusters or umbels, and each individual flower within that cluster has four creamy white petals. Now, interestingly, and this is just a, a little moot point, a paper suggested that sometimes, for some reason, there are plants where, so there are dogwoods where male or female only flowers develop. And even more oddly, sometimes whole plants can be dioecious. And that simply means you've got one plant with only female flowers and one plant with only male flowers. But in general, they are monoecious. That means both female and male sexual parts are contained within the same plant, usually in the same flower. Yeah, I think these um, little oddities are just sent to um, test Confuse. the patience of botanists, aren't they? So. <laughs> Something to talk about, isn't it? At the base of the female ovary... So the female part of the flower is a nectar secreting disc. And this is what the plant uses to attract in all those nice insects. Now, in terms of its flowering, which happens around June, July in the UK, what we tend to find is that in our temperate climates, the fleshy fruited woody shrubs like the dogwood often exhibit an over overproduction of flower. So things like hawthorn is another really good example where in May for hawthorn, the, the plant is absolutely smothered in flower. The whole thing appears white. However, what we find is that less than half of this make it to the fruiting stage. And that's usually for a mixture of reasons, really, for frost damage or sometimes the flowers could be eaten maybe by birds or sometimes being aborted by the plant itself. For example, if we go through a really dry patch and it just doesn't have the, the water to be able to make the fruit. As I alluded to a second ago with the ne nectar secreting disc, insects pollinate the flowers of the dogwood. And when successful pollination has happened, they develop into these small black berries, which are called dogberries. In terms of how the plant actually propagates itself, while insects pollinate the flowers, it's birds that are attracted into the berries. They are high in lipids, which is essentially a fancy way of saying fats, 
and they're fairly high in proteins. So the birds come in, they gobble them up. And then because of the nature of birds being able to fly, they're able to disperse them over really wide areas. And also the nature of how birds go to the toilet, they tend to be deposited in high densities under other shrubs and trees. However, another way that the dogwood also propagates itself is it's quite a freely suckering shrub. And actually studies have shown that individual clones, because that's what's produced, you've essentially got the same plant, um, has been shown to occupy quite large areas in nature, but fragmented. They're not all necessarily right next to each other. I thought that was quite interesting. Also, they can naturally layer themselves when branches come down and touch the ground. And that's just what we've talked about before when in horticulture you can recreate this and create new plants. So what wildlife loves the dogwoods? There's actually loads and loads. I really like reading about this. Um, um, The leaves are tasty to lots of the caterpillars of our Lepidoptera, and that's the butterflies and moths. For example, the little thorn moth, which is a day flying moth that will the caterpillar of that will eat the leaves and also the green hair streak butterfly. Now, this is the UK's only green butterfly. It's also the most widespread of all the hair streaks across the UK. It doesn't doesn't exist on the Isle of Man. It does tend to have localized colonies, but it is over most of the UK. I've never seen one and I really want to now that I know that it's widespread. So this is going to be my my aim for this year. But yeah, their their caterpillars also feed on the leaves of the dogwood. So you're looking out for a green butterfly on a green leaf. Yeah, nothing too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. In addition to the leaves being a really good larval food source, the nectar and pollen produced by the flowers in June, July are also really fantastic for our pollinators. So there's a huge list of pollinators that visit, visit dogwood. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there are loads and loads of bees, including our white and buff-tailed bumblebees. Also, the honeybee visits it, the ashy mining bee, one of my favourites, um, and also quite a few flies, like the dance fly. I did actually just learn about the dance fly. It's quite, I just like the name. And also the pellucid hoverfly, which is one of our largest flies. They all enjoy feasting on the, the flowers of the dogwood. As I said earlier, the mode of dispersal for the, for the seed is by birds. So the berries are really attractive to lots of different bird species. And I will use another really cool term just because I like saying it. But these are our frugal givorous birds and that means birds that eat fruit and that's including robins blackbirds missile thrushes song thrushes red wing and also starlings just give us that word one more time frugivorous oh nice thanks um the seeds are also eaten by mice but that's not so good for dispersal because they just get eaten and chewed up but again really good for wildlife now if you're really sold on the idea of planting dogwood in which case I've done my job well, then I'll just give you a a bit of an overview as to how best to grow it. As I said before, it thrives on the woodland edge. So it's actually, it's really good in full sun and partial shade. It deals with any aspect, so northeast, south or west, and it doesn't mind being exposed or being sheltered. So it's pretty tough as far as garden plants go. It does, however, prefer neutral to alkaline soil and therefore is is actually known as a calcicol. So if you've got particularly acid soil, then maybe dogwood isn't isn't the plant for you. Yeah, I just want to mention something here, which is over the course of however many podcasts we do, 
we're going to be mentioning a lot of plants. So don't feel like you need to rush out and buy one of everything because there's, uh, well, Beth Chatto, a famous gardener, came up with a, a little phrase called right plant, right place. And it just means it your plants will do much better if you put them in the conditions that they like. So we will point out if there's plants that only like certain soil types and, and this, that and the other. So yeah, if you've got really acid soil, um, you can either tell that from doing a pH test or if camellias and heathers, uh, skimmias, various other things do really well in your garden, rhododendrons as well, then that means you're likely to have an acid soil. So probably don't try a, a dogwood there. Yeah, I love the right plant, right place, because then you, you're getting the best for everything. The plant's happy, you're happy with how the plant looks, and everyone is enjoying their garden. It's actually one of our most shade-tolerant fleshy-fruited native shrubs, as I've said. However, for that really rich stem colour, it does prefer a bit of sun, and also that aids flowering and fruiting as well. So how can you get yourself some? Now, you could propagate by seed, but you might not necessarily get the plant that's true to the type that you've taken the seed from. So fine to do it if you just want the bog standard native and not a cultivar. However, if you if you are doing that, then just be aware that you'll be waiting about five or six years before any <laughs> flowering happens. But again, like, you know, gardening is a long game and it is fun to grow things from seed. Uh, if you are doing that as well, it's also quite simple because it, it does need uh, what we call cold stratification, which is what we've talked about before. Another word is uh, to describe this is vernalization. And that just means it needs a winter and, and a cold period to aid for germination to actually work. However, if you've got that and it needs, I think, eight weeks of cold weather, it, there's a really good rate of germination uh, as long as you've planted it about five centimetres depth. Another way of getting plants is by hardwood cuttings. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the RHS page on taking hardwood cuttings. Or if you're lucky enough to come across one of these suckers, you can simply dig that up. And as long as it's got a good root system that's developed on the sucker itself. Just chop it off with a spade. Just chop it off. Plant it. However, if you are wanting that stem colour right now with a plant that's going to flower in this year, then go ahead and buy it and there's loads of different suppliers but as again a caveat that we always give always buy uk grown stock and ideally in peat free compost however i do recognize that it's really difficult to find there are cultivars of corna sanguinea which have been developed for a slightly different stem color and i'm just going to give you a couple of them now the most well-known one is probably Midwinter Fire, and it just is amazing. Really vibrant, bright red, orange, through to yellow stems. And when they catch the sunlight, they're as good as any flower at this time of year in terms of how they look for in a garden. If you go to just about any winter garden anywhere in the UK, you will see um, a cornice Midwinter Fire because they're just, they're just so good. They're easy to grow, and the colour, oh, it's, just, it's just stunning. And if you're going to get one, I would say always get minimum three and just plant a little cluster because that's when they make the biggest impact rather than just having one by itself, if you've got the room, of course. Now, there are various other versions of what we, as far as we can tell, the same thing, but they do have different names. Um, there's also Winter Flame. There's also Magic Flame and also Annie's Winter Orange. And they do all, they, they essentially do the same thing as Midwinter Fire, but they, they just look fantastic. And there was also another one that I found called Corna sanguinea cato, which is also known as the Arctic sun dogwoods, which is just a, a distinct group. 
and those have striking yellow stems that then fade to crimsons. So what do you do when you've bought yourself a cornice, planted it in your garden and you want it to look its very best? There's a couple of things just to take a note of. It's the youngest stems that have the brightest colour. So what you quite often see advice for is to cut the whole plant back every couple of years or so. And that just encourages that fresh growth to come up. It's known as coppicing. We've talked about it before when we talked about the hazel. And you do that in late March or early April, just as the leaves are starting to come into bud. However, if you are wanting to maximise the plant for wildlife use, as well as having those bright stems, then our preferred approach is to prune out about a third of the plant every year. So you're not cutting the whole thing down to ground. You're just pruning out the oldest, biggest stems. It keeps the, the size in check, but then you're also allowing some more mature shoots to grow up. And those are the ones that are going to flower and fruit that year. Before you go ahead and, and put in a dogwood and then cut it all down this year, I would just say that the best practice is to probably wait a couple of years for that plant to establish before you even start the the pruning out a third just to give it the best chance really and also always give a plant that you've pruned recently a good dose of food in the form of uh, some compost around its roots it will really appreciate that yeah the way I like to think about this is think about how much food it's taken you to get from a toddler to an adult <laughs> and then if somebody shrank you back to a toddler you're going to need all that food again aren't you so all you're doing by giving them the compost is giving them the feed to grow back up to an adult again indeed that's fantastic. It's one of my personal favourites for a garden. So yeah, right plant, right place. But if you have got the right place, I really recommend a dogwood. And I think that's pretty much it for this episode. I, so. I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion about what is wildlife gardening. Thank you for all the f wonderful feedback that we've had from all of you. It's really encouraging to know people are listening and enjoying. Please go ahead and leave a review if you haven't already. Yeah, if you wanted to help us out, um, please do share our podcast with any friends and family who you think would be interested and we really do mean it if you've got any questions please get in touch with us we'll be happy to answer them um, if we don't know like we said we'll go ahead and look for the answer and it might be the topic for a future podcast so if you want to get in touch we have a facebook page which is facebook forward slash the wildlife garden podcast on twitter we are twitter.com forward slash the wild gdn um, and if you want to follow what we do professionally, we've got our business website, which is elliswellies.com. And on there, we often have different blogs uh, covering some topics that we don't get around to on the podcast as well. Uh, and we've also got a Facebook page for that, which is facebook.com forward slash Elliswellies Gardening. Well, look forward to hearing from you all. Yeah. See you next time. Bye. Bye.